0: Welcome to Global River Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit globalriver.org. If you don't have a a bulletin or a handout, why don't you raise your hand, I'll ask our um, meet or greeters to get you one. You'll see three pages, we're not going to get that all done today, but I um, I really sense that... I'm going to do a teaching, actually, the first part. Probably most of this sermon today will be focused on teaching, and next week maybe we'll get into preaching. We'll see how this goes. Um, So, you're going to want to take your outline, pull out a pen. I want to give you a couple of foundational Scriptures that I'd like you to look at as we uh, go into this teaching series, both this week and next week. There's, um, first of all, let me tell you the premise of why I'm teaching this one. Uh, Several weeks ago, I was invited to speak to some UNCW college students in a group called Ratio Christi. Ratio Christi is Latin for the cause of Christ, and it's a global um, ministry that goes into both all the universities, to both to train and teach faculty and students about the cause for Christ. But it's really interesting. Um, They invite, I, I was the last speaker in the final of the semester, so they've had these Many, many speakers come in and present why they believe what they believe. And man, I listened to hours of those prior speakers, and I am really, really concerned what's being taught in our universities. And so... What I realize is that um, I love what Nico and Diana are doing about our children, the foundational teaching of our children, raise the child up in the way that they should go. But I have found out this next generation, because there's so many that have never attended Sunday school to any great degree, that there's really no teaching going on in any consistency in the home, that today we've got a generation that does not know fundamental truth. The Bible was taken out of the school system in the 60s, right? Used to be up until that for hundreds of years, the Bible was the teaching instrument in the school. So, what we've got is a whole generation of folks that now are in our churches that do not understand the foundations of of the principles of the kingdom. And so, the questions I got from these students actually blew my mind. And some of the teaching that was done by the prior instructors was so anti-Scripture that I just said, you know what? (laughs) I need to make sure that global I'm responsible, right? If I tell you the truth and you refuse the truth, then the blood is on you. But if I don't tell you the truth, Ezekiel tells us, if I don't tell you the truth, then your blood is on me. So uh, there's a side of this is I want you to know the truth, right? And so so there's a couple of foundational scriptures. Write this at the top. You should have an outline that says Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Movement. But there's a couple of scriptures I'd like you to first just jot this down and I'll read it to you. In John chapter 8, in verse 31, Jesus said to the people who believed him, that's John 8, 31, and 32. Jesus said to the people who believed in him, You are truly my disciples if, if, if you remain faithful to my teachings, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Really, so true disciples remain faithful to the teachings of Christ, right? And that truth will set you free. Okay, that's one scripture. Now turn back to Peter, and it's probably a familiar scripture if you've looked at any of the end time stuff. In, let's turn to 1 Peter, to Timothy, not Peter, 1 Timothy chapter 4. We'll look at verse, uh, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. So, so, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. So, remember, Jesus says, my true disciples that believe me remain in my teachings. Now, Paul tells his spiritual son, Timothy, in both 1 Timothy and in 2 Timothy, a warning about the last days. Many can debate whether we're in the last days. Many believe we are. Um, the signs are certainly there if you study the uh, the apocalyptic studies that Jesus gave in matthew twenty four luke twenty one mark thirteen he tells you these are the signs of the end right, and many have ticked off and whether we 're in the last days or whether it 's your last days, right look around here, probably within a hundred years, most of us won 't be here if he tarries right so whether he comes or we go um the scripture scripture's relevant so look at 1 Timothy 4:1 now the holy spirit tells us clearly king james says it this way now the spirit speaks expressly this is very different language right he expressly in the latter times some shall depart from the faith some shall depart from the faith giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. In the last days, Paul says to Timothy, in the last days, the Holy Spirit is very, very clear. There will be a movement of people that will come away from the teaching, and they will be under the teaching of demons. That's his warning. Let me do it and live a new living. Now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the faith, the true faith, they will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. King James says that their consciences have been seared. If You ever take a hot iron and you sear something? It means they're so scarred, their consciences are totally dead. He then tells us, turn to 2 Timothy This was actually Paul's final will and testament. Right after he wrote this second epistle to Timothy, he was martyred for his faith. He was in prison in Rome when he wrote this, and it was one of those urgencies that says, I got to tell my, my family what's, what I see coming. And he warns again in chapter 3 of Second Timothy, the dangers of the last days. King James says, Know also this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Now, what is perilous times? Wow. Is that COVID? Is it thousands dying? Is it the famines? Is it wars and rumors of wars? Sounds like it, increasing. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, and unholy, without natural affection. Hello? truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of that which is good, traitors, heady, high mondes, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power that could save them. New Living says it this way, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times. People will love only themselves and their money. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving, unforgiving. They'll slander others. Man, if you turn on the television right now, the gossip and the hatred, and the it is just so vile. I'm a little older. <laughs> I don't remember this kind of stuff. It was always bad, but this is vile. And social media has just made this thing on spades. They will betray their their friends, reckless, puffed up with pride. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Okay, these are three foundational scriptures. Um, these are some of the questions when I listen to hours of these. Some were professors, many were pastors. They came and they talked to these groups. They'd get two-hour slots and they would present their belief systems about religion. And so, some of the questions I got, some of you were there. I invited some folks to be with me and I appreciate you being there. Um, These were the questions that were raised or at least preached to the UNCW students. And one of the questions is asked to me, does your church believe in cessationism Or continuationism. I'm going to lay some words on you. Like, why are we going to Bible college, Pastor? Because these are foundational scriptures. I'd love you to jot them jot them down, and then you study them. Because I'm going to hit them, but I'm, I'm going to take two weeks, and we're going to go through these. We are not a church of cessationism. We believe in continuationism, which is the acts of the Holy Spirit. The cessationists believe, and this one pastor came and said, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are not for today. They ended when the the prophets died. We're going to look at Scripture, and I'm going to show you that I don't believe that to be true. Cessationism, that they said the Holy Spirit gifts are not for today. They're they're over. That would then stop some of the revelation we even had this morning, right? Right? Continuationism is that the Holy Spirit was given in the Acts of the Apostles during Acts chapter 2 during Pentecost, and that Spirit was poured out on all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams, your young men, And then we look at what, in the further in the Scriptures, and you see the continuation of that. And I'm going to unpack that when we look at the book of Acts. So, cessationism versus continue. what does your church believe about that? And let me just read it to you. Cessationism versus continuationism involves Christian theological dispute as to whether the spiritual gifts, apostolic, remain available to the church or whether this generation had ceased in the apostolic age. The cessationist doctrine arose from the Protestant Reformation initially in response to claims of the Roman Catholic miracles. Modern discussion focuses on the use of the charismatic gifts both in the Pentecostal and the charismatic movements. Cessationism is a Protestant doctrine that the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, prophecy, and healing ceased with the apostolic age. Reformers such as John Calvin originated this view. Today, the charismatic movement, the Pentecostal movement, have popularized the radical, radical continuationism, the position that the spiritual gifts are meant for all Christians of all ages." I was asked that question, so are you a cessationist church? I said, absolutely not. Another one that presented was, and we're going to talk about mountains to die on and mountains to bleed on. What I mean by that is, a mountain to die on is, I'm not negotiating with this. I will die first before I submit to that lie. Those are mountains to die on. If you're ever brought to the place where you have to deny Christ, you can't right? Deny your faith. Stop preaching the Scriptures. No. So, one of the speakers presented eternal security, and that was, a question was, the pastor presented that once saved, always saved. That's eternal security, that you can't lose salvation. So, I was asked the question, Pastor, do you believe that? I said, well, this is a mountain to bleed on. Why do I say that? Some of you may remember an exercise we did a few years ago. I said, we're going to take a Wednesday night, and I selected Dave back there. Raise your hand at me, Dave. Were you the one saved, always saved, or that could lose it? No, 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 that was Danny. That was He was the one saved, always saved? Yeah. Danny Holden, he's in heaven right now. Bless you. So, I said, okay, we're going to have Dave who says you can lose salvation, and those who believe that sit on this side of the sanctuary Those who are with Danny who say, you can't lose your salvation, sit over here. And those who don't know, sit in the middle. And we were split, right, Dave? And so we had, and I said, okay, now present your scriptural case. And there are scriptures. In fact, you look this up. Go on Google, look it up. It says, once saved, always saved, or lose saved. You'll get scriptures on both sides. So what what does that mean, Pastor? When there is tension in scripture, I always like to, to preach it with, Why would you figure out, if you're eternally secure, that you can never lose salvation? Or yet, better yet, Calvinists believe that once you're predestined, you're predestined no matter what you do, you're saved. There's no free will involved. That's another, anyway, we're going to talk. So, if you're a once saved, always saved, you can get right up to the edge, and I can do whatever I want because I'm in. Or would you rather be Walking in holiness, who can pursue the hill of the Lord? Who can go, who can climb? Those who have clean hands and a pure heart seek to be holy. Or be holy as I am holy. So get away from the edge, right? Right. So they presented their case. Dave, do you think you won? You did. You okay? He did. I figured as much. And uh, anyway, so but it was clear that there were not many left in the center. They had moved to both sides. So what's the point of that? You have to look at Scripture. That's a that's a hill. bleed on. You will be in heaven if you believe that or the other, right? As long as Christ is at the center. So when he asked me, do you believe in eternal security? Because you charismatics, you think you can lose Scripture, lose your salvation maybe. I said, well, let's look at Scripture, and we will in a little bit. Then I was asked a question from one of the… He's actually a pastor, and he's in Bible college. He introduced himself before the meeting, then he says, well, what do you believe about kenosis, pastor? Anybody know what that word means? Okay. Ten things that you should know about kenosis. You, you know, you can have this discussion around lunch. <laughs> yeah, my wife would say, right, right. This is the place where when Jesus became a human being, did He give up His divine divinity? Did He cease to be God? And I told her, I said, no. But what the what the person was really asking me is, Do you believe, like most charismatics and most Pentecostals, that you, Jesus, emptied Himself? We're going to look at this in Philippians chapter 2. Remember what it says, Jesus emptied Himself, considering Himself of no reputation, made Himself in the form of a servant, right? Jesus laid down His divine power not His divinity. He was fully God and fully man. You can't read 1 John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the, God, the Word became man and dwelt among us. The flesh, right? You can't. He's fully God. But He also became fully human. Remember, He was tempted in all ways like this. How could He be tempted in all ways like this and never sin? So, He laid down His divine power And what happened? We'll see in Luke's gospel, chapter 3, and verse uh, at the end, after Jesus is baptized, right? And you know that the heavens were ripped. It literally means in the Greek, the heavens were torn open and they were never untorn. And at that moment, the Father said, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then, in the form of a dove, I don't know what the, it came and it settled on him. The Holy Ghost settled on him. And it says, immediately after that, Luke 4, 1, it says, Jesus now full of the Holy Spirit. He didn't begin his ministry until he was age 30, until he was water baptized, and he was baptized by the Holy Ghost, and his father's identity settled on him. And it says, now Jesus full of the Holy Ghost was led by the Spirit into the, de- into the desert to be tempted. So Kenosis the ones that are trying to instare you is, so you charismatics, you believe that Jesus wasn't fully God when He came in human flesh. Oh, no. We believe that He was fully God and fully man, but it would not have been any big whoop to beat the devil as God, right? But when He laid down His power and He said, now I will be a human being in my full God form, but I will trust in the presence of the Holy Spirit led by the Father to do exactly what He said. So, we stand on Philippians chapter 2. Jesus emptied Himself. and There's a whole study of articles and all the Greek words, we got it in our outline. So, that was a question. He was trying to ensnare me. So, so, you don't believe Jesus was God? I said, absolutely do believe Jesus was God. But the power of the Holy Ghost is what makes a difference. That's why you can't do this life without the power of the Holy Ghost. Right? All right. Well, pastor, do you believe in the new apostolic reformation? Are you an NAR? I said, yes, I am. Now, you might say, has anybody ever heard that term, New Apostolic Reformation? Couple, okay. The New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR, and soon you'll see, oh, yeah, we are that. I'm giving you some terms so when someone says, what do you believe, you at least have an understanding or at least some revelation of this. The New Apostolic Reformation is a movement which seeks to establish the fifth branch within Christendom. It's distinct from Catholicism, Protestantism, which includes Pentecostalism and Oriental Orthodoxy of the Eastern Orthodoxy. The movement largely consists of churches nominally and formally associated with Pentecostal denominations and the charismatic movement, but they have diverged from the traditional Pentecostal and charismatic theology in that they advocate the restoration of the lost offices the church governance, namely the office of the prophet and the apostle. The New Apostolic Reformation is a title originally used by C. Peter Wagner to describe the movement within the Pentecostal charismatic churches. The New Apostolic Reformation is a descriptive of the theological movement. It's not an organization. It's not, It doesn't have any formal membership. It's inspired by the title with a wide range of variants. Let me basically cut this. It's the, it's the presence of the restoration. Remember, we'll, we'll turn here at another point. Do you remember in Ephesians chapter 4, where it says that Jesus gave gifts to the church? Ephesians 4, right? He gave gifts to the church, and then he lists five of them, right? Apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, evangelist. What's the role of the, those gifts given by Jesus to the church? To build and edify the church, right? To equip the saints for the works of ministry. So when the apostles died, that's it? No. And so what we see in the new apostolic reformation is the emphasis on, last weekend we had a prophetic team here, and they imparted to us revelation in the prophetic. And whether you've been a part of this, you know that the prophetic revelations, whether it's through dance or through uh, writings or paintings or words, the prophetic revelation, right? Paul, what did Paul mean when he said, this is the argument I had for one of the pastors that countered this. He said, you know, tongue stopped, prophecy stopped, healing stopped. I said, really? How come I came into the kingdom through healing? How come I've seen hundreds and hundreds of healings? You can't unsee them. Right? And so the fivefold ministry gifts are still here. They're gifts from Jesus. You can look at that, look it up. Remember, Hebrews, uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, they're given as gifts to equip the saints. Well, then I was asked, what about, do you believe in the quadrilaterals, the Wesleyan quadrilaterals? That's a fancy term for it's the foundations of Scripture. John Wesley, we, we did a whole study on John Wesley. I remember when Pastor Terry came, we actually presented uh, Wesley's background, his doctrine, some history. Wesley, in the 1700s, John Wesley was the formation of the Methodism, right? The, it was methods against Satan, actually what it was. And if you read his, his doctrines of the four, what he calls the quadrilaterals, it is the premise of, let's turn to, let me quickly, I'll have you turn to page 2. and look down on number Hallelujah. 5A. The biblical what John Wesley said was one, the Bible is the inerrant word of God. Undeniable word of God. We're going to look at the scripture on that one, 2 Timothy 3:16. Crucicentrism, again, that's fancy word. It's the work of the cross. The cross of Christ was our redemption, the blood that was shed. If you deny the cross, which is what's happening in many denominations today, pluralism is as many ways up the mountain. You can get saved other ways. That's a lie. It doesn't line up with Scripture. And so, he said, look, the Bible is in there and got the cross. Then this, this centrality of the cross and conversion, a person must be born again. You can't be sprinkled as a baby and saved forever right? Just because grandma was saved doesn't mean you're saved. There you have to have your own personal born-again experience, and you can't read New Testament without getting there, right? John chapter 3. Remember, he said to Nicodemus who came to at night, you must be born again. You must be born of water and of the spirit. How can you not know these things? You're a teacher of the law, and you don't know these things. So, he said that, and then the fourth one is a lifestyle, activism. If your life does not model Christ, If you speak Christ, it's all talk, but you live like hell, you're not walking in the quadrilaterals of your faith. There needs to be a change in your life. What did John tell us? First John, he says, if you continue to sin, right, you can't continue to sin. When I was a sinner, I was good at it, right? But when I got born again, it's like, oh, and then you get convicted in the fear of the Lord, and if you get rebuked, the fear of the Lord brings it back to you, and you have to change your life. You have to change your lifestyle. So, those are the quadrilateral. So, I was asked the question, so what are you, does your church believe in the foundations of those Scriptures? And absolutely, yes. These were some of the examples. So, let me kind of pull this back. Those are statements we're going to unpack because I want you to have a foundational understanding when someone says, what do you mean by cessationism? Another one, what about replacement theology? That was, I was asked that question. Does your church believe in replacement theology? Replacement theology is a heresy that says, doesn't line up with Romans chapter 9, 10, or 11. Remember, it says we are grafted in. We're the wild bunch, right? We're the wild branch. And we've been grafted in to the, to the tree that is Israel. So you're a wild bunch, but you've been grafted in. But he did not deny his beloved people, Israel. But this theology today, the replacement theology is the church of Jesus Christ has replaced the Jews. And therefore, that is a lie. Because you can't read Romans and says, when the exact number of Gentiles has come in, all of Israel will be saved. So when you look at this, this is the apple of his eye. I don't read, how can you read the Old Testament when it says in this covenant that this covenant is an everlasting covenant for my people who are the apple of my eye? You're not, you cannot read Scripture and believe that. But there's a whole denomination right now, PCA, uh, the Presbyterian. My, my uncle was a Presbyterian minister. Well, they've split. The Presbyterian USA. What are they? They are a very, very liberal group. They're the ones that are boycotting Israel. They've got this thing called BDS. They don't buy their products. They want them completely bankrupted. They've come against Israel. And guess where that denomination is going? Right? Because Genesis 12, 3 says, you cannot bless Israel and not get blessed. If you curse Israel, you'll be cursed. Right? So we better watch out in this nation. All right. So when we look at Pentecostalism, Versus the charismatic movement, this Ratio Christi group, I love their hearts because they're in pursuit, but boy, there was some stuff there that that word in Latin means the reason for Christ, but they look at the philosophical, scientific, and historical reasons for following Christ. I said, that's all nice, but how about the Holy Spirit reason for following Christ? Which is probably why they invited me to come speak as the last speaker. Uh, I was there, but it was good because it was their graduation night, so I got a lot. There were good folks there. So, I listened to a number of hours of these, and one of the cessationist pastors came out and says, you know, you charismatics, um, he made a statement, these charismatics are like ignorance on ice. I'm sorry, ignorance on fire. You charismatics are like ignorance on fire. And I push back, he goes, I guess that's better than being intellect on ice, <laughs> right? So, there was this debate. It's like, in other words, you charismatics, you got it all wrong, but you're also very enthusiastic. <laughs> and uh, I think the Scripture says, be enthusiastic about what the, when you serve the Lord, right? But I don't buy into this ignorance, and that's part of why we're talking about what we're talking about. So, I don't want to be intellect on ice And I don't want to be ignorant on fire, but I do want to be a living stone, 2 Peter, right? We want to have an experience. But here's the other thing that I have found out, and you have demonstrated this. A person who's had a personal experience with God, the person who has an argument for God, a theological intellectual argument, is no match for a person who's had an experience with God. Some of you have read my book. No, if you haven't, get it, but it's… When this little girl at nine months was sick under a spirit of infirmity, hospitalized, they couldn't figure out why she couldn't digest. I'm not saved. I'm 22 years old. I get dragged to a healing service with Reverend Floyd Baker, ex Hell's Angel, saved. He's praying for people that are getting out of wheelchairs. And I'm like, oh, brother, here's the doubting Thomas side. I'm now the seeker of truth side. Okay. And so the doubting Thomas side guy said, oh, this is just a scam. Watch, you're going to pass the plate right? Well, in the middle of that end of the middle of his sermon, I don't know what he said. I was sitting in the black bleachers, ready to go, annoying my wife. And I said, let's get out of here. This is crazy. And uh, she'd gotten saved like three weeks before by the charismatic movement in the Catholic church. And she came and told me she had been saved. And she said, we're going to a healing service. So we're going to pray for Sarah. I said, I'm not going. She said, yes, you are. I went. Um, Something like, your your dinner will be in the mailbox for a year or something like, you know. Anyway, so I go there, and in the middle of his sermon, he stops, and he pulls my wife and I out, and he says, there's a child, there's a couple been praying for a young child, and she's being healed of an intestinal disorder right now. Well, we had just met with... The Dr. Nitschman who'd done, I had GE insurance. I was a GE nuclear guy. I had all the best insurance. They went this way. They went that. They did everything. And the doctor had come back and he said, we don't know what to do. We have nothing left to tell you. That child should be well. We can keep her alive if we intravenously feed her. I said, that God of idolatry of science at that moment bowed to the name of fear. And I had it out with God. I said, I've heard from my mother all my life that you're a good God. I don't see anything good with this. If you really exist, if you exist, you heal her. If you don't heal her, then we'll have no conversation again. And then I had some four-letter words attached to that that I had learned. And so, then I get invited to this healing service, and that word of knowledge pulls us out of a crowd. And my wife acts in faith takes the child and feeds this child, three plates. She'd been starving, not allowed, banana flakes, ketop- ketop- Pedialyte, substituting that. My wife said, no, I'm not doing that. Jesus healed her, and she was healed. That was a spirit of infirmity. You can't tell me, I was an unbelieving skeptic, at, close to atheism, I was at least an agnostic. I can't see God in this at all. When God breaks in like that, and a spirit of infirmity, that spiritual darkness, that was a, an infirm spirit because, man, I had doors open everywhere, right? And that spirit of infirmity visited, and God got a hold of me with a two-by-four on the side of the head. If you want to get a hold of a parent, touch, let the child go through something. Ask Jairus, right, in Mark's gospel, chapter 5, right? The leader of the synagogue whose 13-year-old daughter's dying, and he gets to the feet of Jesus, the heck with my, my job description. The rest of the Jews, leaders are trying to kill Jesus. Uh-uh. He gets to this, He says, come. And he comes. You can't tell me I didn't see that mirror. You can't tell me words of knowledge aren't real. You can't tell me that there's not a spirit of infirmity. You can't tell me Jesus is not a healer. My first miracle in Brazil, a crippled woman is healed, delivered from... Witchcraft, who'd been cursed at one year old, a Makumba witch put a curse on her family and she was crippled, eight surgeries. My wife and I are praying for her. When Jesus, in the name of Jesus, we, she forgave the, the witchcraft, she forgave her father, she forgave all those who made fun of her, all the rejection. And when we prayed and she delivered dramatically in the name of Jesus, you can't tell me I didn't see the name of Jesus powerfully delivering. You can't tell me I saw it with my own eyes. And then when she got up and she walked and her back went straight and her leg bone went straight, you can't tell me I didn't see it. And you can't tell me that that's demonic. No, what's the fruit of that? You'll know them by their fruit. You can't tell me God didn't, those things ceased. I'm a product of that. I left my other business. I left my my example of what I did in life to come and be a pastor because I believe it's true. So somebody with an intellectual argument is no match for a person who's met Jesus. We've seen with our own eyes. This is true. So we see this movement of God and says, this argument, the miraculous healings. When you're in Brazil, as many of you... How many were in, uh, I'm sorry, Tanzania. How many were in Tanzania with us? There's at least eight or nine of you in Tanzania. We went to Boma. And that day when the Muslims had their conference the day before because they knew the Christians were coming, when we preached the gospel and we did deliverance, hundreds came to Christ. Hundreds got healed. Blind eyes opened. Tumors disappeared. This was true. And every one of them that were there, we saw with our own eyes what Jesus does. So this experience, when hundreds are coming into Christ, what did he say in Acts? He says, the signs and wonders verify that the message is true, right? In, in Mark chapter 16, go into all the world, make disciples of all men, preach the gospel. Those who believe will be saved. Those who reject will not. These will be the signs of them that believe. Cast out demons in my name. Lay hands on the sick and they'll recover. You'll be able to handle deadly things without harm. These are the. Tr- this is the true gospel. And when that happens, it says, and the Lord worked with them, verifying signs and wonders that the message was true. Evangelism is powerful in this. That's why the charismatic movement is growing leaps and bounds. And the denominational churches are dying. It's a season that we're in and God is moving there. Well, what's the difference between, this, there's words here, You've heard things like evangelical church. What is an evangelical church? What's the difference between an e- we are an evangelical church. We believe in the five those four foundational principles I talked to you about. We believe in the Holy Spirit and the presence that the gifts are for today, but the denominational mainline churches, one of the speakers talked about the sadness he had that pluralism has crept into the church. Pluralism is there are many ways up the mountain. All other faiths, unfortunately, there are some leaders like the Pope, right? The ecumenical movements that are happening right now, that there's many ways up the mountain. There isn't. There's only one way up the mountain. John 14, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Right? So we see this, this pluralism that exists in our society, but it is that turning away. This is what Paul warned Timothy There's a last day's warning that's coming. Well, there was a Pew Research poll in 2014 that said, identified, unfortunately, this falling away. This is only 2014, so six, seven years ago, seven years ago. One, they asked the question of local, those who are attending church in the different denominations, how many of you believe that Jesus is the only way? 36% of the Baptists said it. 1% of the Methodists said it. John Wesley would turn over in his grave. 3% of the Presbyterians and 6% of the Lutherans. The evangelicals believe in the foundational principles. There is no other way but Christ, the cross and Him only. Conversion is that. There was another Gallup poll. This is another one in 2014, a Gallup poll. 70% of Americans identified as Christians, but only a little over half of them believed in a heaven and a hell. How can you read the Scripture? You know, there, I, I went and research this. There were 1,900 verses spoken by Jesus, red letter. In that, there were 192 verses on heaven, and, and there were 60 on hell. 13% of the time, Jesus himself spoke of heaven and, and hell. So how can you deny a heaven and a hell? Uh, it, again, it, you have to be out of the Scriptures. You can't be believing in the Scriptures if that's the case. This pastor who spoke against the gifts, he also said, we, this is one of those hills you probably bleed on. We, if I were to ask you, we have two sacraments in Protestantism. The sacraments were commands given by Jesus, and one is the Lord's Supper and water baptism. Go and be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and do this in remembrance of me. So, there are two sacraments, the Lord's Supper and water baptism. Not sprinkling, although we dedicate babies, which is, you know, that's, again, biblically, Jesus was dedicated on the eighth day, right? That's, so, we come and we have the parents say, I'll train this child up in the way it should go. And when they're old, they won't depart from it. So, we dedicate children. But the Catholics have seven sacraments. Again, this is, you, we're not going to argue, we can argue about it, but guess what? We'll both be in heaven if you believe the others, <laughs> the other biblical. So, one, infant baptism, they sprinkle their baptism. Or they pour a little on the head. Catechism is another sacrament. Marriage is a sacrament. Confirmation, confession, last rites, and the Lord's Supper. So when people talk about, well, what are the sacraments that your church believes in? There are two commands by Jesus. That's why we have the sacrament of Lord's Supper and water baptism. That's why we go to the beach or men's group. We had a, a horse trough. And we, you know, we're not fancy in the men's group, Right. <laughs> We we did heat it with a anyway and so full immersion when you and that's go and be baptized right that's what he said well this whole thing of predestination when it, when they say does your church believe in predestination or free will again we don't have to get too technical Calvin and Arminian. this is the argument in the fifteen hundreds that many. And I'm glad that John Wesley squared this away. But when they say, do you believe in predestination? In other words, no matter what you do, you're saved. God knows in advance. He does. He's all-powerful. But His free will involved it all. We know that it says there was God desired that none should perish. All would be saved, right? But we also know what Jesus said, the way is narrow and few ever find it. Broad is the, is the, is the highway. So, not everybody's saved, Say from what so where are they? Well, he spoke of hell. In Matthew 25, where he says in the, the brides, the 12 to 10 bridesmaids, five of them have oil and lamp, and five don't. What's the oil and the lamp? Go research it. Those who have the presence of the Holy Spirit who are ready when he comes, they go with the bridegroom. But the other five bridesmaids were invited to the wedding feast. They're in the bridal party, but they're not ready. And it says when he comes, he closes the door and he says, I never knew you. And they are sent into outer darkness where there's gnashing of teeth. It's probably a scripture David used. You can't always, can you lose salvation? Some interesting scriptures. So again, a hill to to bleed on, maybe not a hill to die on. So I want us to look at... um, this whole thing, when, when Calvin said, predestined, no matter what you do, you're saved. And then Jacob, Arminian's, Arminianism came and he says, no, there is this place where there's free will involved. I love what uh, John Wesley came in. 200 years later, John Wesley came in and said, provenient grace. It's another great term. That the Holy Spirit draws everyone. Remember, no one comes to Christ except by the Holy Spirit. He draws you. When it says, I found Jesus, now reality, He found you. You just responded, right? So there's this call. Remember, in my situation, the two by four to the side of the head, a skeptic and not, and go ahead and touch my child. I'll do anything. Where are you? If you're real, you got to show up. And then He does. So I came in with the, you know, calibration method, right? Some people can be wooed in by, with the love of God. But he's just, he, he knows what it takes. He, he knows you. Right? And so, but this free will involved, provenient grace is you respond by the Spirit to say yes. And that free will matters. And so there is grace, but you can't read the rest of the scripture. Remember, we're back to the premise. If this is the inerrant word of God, and that says that you have to come to Christ, there's no other way, then this is the way. Walk ye in it. And so we know that this is again in the in the understanding of Scripture, we, we thank God for the prevenient grace that He gives us free will. That coincides with Old Testament, Deuteronomy 30. Remember, we, we preached this a couple of weeks ago. In Deuteronomy 30 says, I put, you, I put before you today choices between life and death, between blessing and prosperity, and disaster. All heaven will witness the choices you make, and that you and your children would live. Deuteronomy 30, read it. Gonna, then you go and you look at the, the New Testament, the same thing. Who can come to Christ? I researched a little of this. One of the, this is what's sad about some of the things that are happening both in our seminaries and also in our religious studies. The Department of Religious Studies in UNC Chapel Hill, there's an individual called Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N. He's, a, he's an avid atheist, Christianity is morally irreprehensible. He's written multiple books. He's teaching UNCW students on how Christ... Anyway, that's what's being taught. Of the 13 seminaries that are cranking out pastors and leaders and bishops, 12 of them are so liberal. What's happening today, there's really only one. <laughs> I love... it. Anyway, I won't talk about that one, but there's... What's happening is the, these seminaries. That's why many have said it's not a seminary; it's a cemetery. You may go there in faith and come out with no faith. So we need to pray for that. Princeton. This guy, I Ermin, mean, he was a graduate of Princeton. You know what Princeton was founded on? This was. If you go back and look at the study of Yale and Princeton, they were to crank out pastors and leaders. And now they've been so corrupted and broken, and now they're cranking out antichrist leaders. And what's happened is this is amazing one of the pastors, he's a Wesleyan pastor, he came and spoke, and the Wesleyan Methodists are now in a lawsuit against the United Methodist Church. You know the splits going on. The Episcopals have split, right? All of the splits that are happening, what's happening? The liberal denominations are now splitting away from the conservatives who believe the evangelical truths. And so, you got that with the Episcopals, you got it with the Presbyterians. Well, the United Methodists in 1968 the United Methodists formed a, an agreement that if you're a united, let's, let's unite to capture the world for Methodism. So they all signed in, in Europe, in Africa, South America, United States. Well, what's happened is they've gotten so liberal, they're now ordaining homosexuals, right? They're marrying homosexuals. They've got participating homosexual priests in there. So what's happened is the, li- the liberal branch of that has now broken from and they are, if you don't agree with the agreement from 1968, you must give up your property, pensions, and all. I've done prayer ministries on Methodist pastors who've come here, broken, have lost everything, but they will not compromise. Well, the United Methodists now in a lawsuit with the Wesleyans, the Wesleyans are saying, they're waiting for this COVID thing, they're, gonna, they're, gonna, they're suing them and says, look, you can't take our property and make us buy it back again because we don't agree with you theologically. So, that lawsuit is on right now. And so, we see, but what's happened is the liberal Methodists in the United States are being countered by the African and South American United Methodist pastors who are in the evangelical stream of the Bible, and they're saying, but there's more of them there, and they're overriding the liberals in the United States, and they're sending missionaries to the United States. We need it. But you know what? He got up and he was lamenting. He goes, you know, it's really sad. The average attendance of a Methodist church is 40 people, and the average age is 65. We are a dying generation. And so, they want to leave, and they want to do something different. I like this story. Um, One of the stories this Methodist pastor shared you know why we're so, the evangelicals believe in prayer and the power of prayer and intercession. We just finished three weeks of Reese Howell's intercession and the power of it. And our Wednesday mornings, if you're free, come. We had 30 in intercession on Wednesday morning from 9 to 1030. And it's it's, it's propelling the church in ways where we pray and we intercede for the nations. We ask the Lord to do it. Well, I love this. Um, Wheaton College in 1940, it's one of the colleges of conservatism, this Pastor took a team to Wesley's house in, in England, and so while they were in England, they offloaded the bus, they went in, Wesley's house is all set up the way it was when he was there, Charles and John Wesley, and so it's kind of a museum, and you go there, well, they do a tour and everything, and they find out, they go into John Wesley's bedroom, and John Wesley, by his journals, would get up from 5 a.m. to 7 every morning and pray for two hours. He would kneel by his bed, and he would pray. He prayed so much that the floorboards next to his bed have knee indentions worn through the wood. Hello. And so, they get on the bus, and one student's missing. So, the instructor gets off the bus. He searches the house, and they find him sitting by Wesley's bed with his knees in the imprints of the floorboards, and Billy Graham was praying. Yeah. Something about prayer. just got electrocuted. So, I, I just, Lord, I just pray that, Lord, we would not, we would see how important prayer is for us, Lord. And so, my desire is to provide this information to you in a way that you're able to at least have a working understanding of what is the biblical basis of what we as a church, an evangelical charismatic church, believes. One of the things that we, we we promote, there's no question. If you've been here at any time, if you have not been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you must seek and. Serve, and I'm going to give you plenty of scriptures for that. And um, why is that important? If you ever, I love what Terry did. Pastor Terry did a while back. He brought the journals. I still remember several years ago. He brought the journals of John Wesley. And in Wesley's journals, he was a spirit-filled evangelical, tongue-talking, massive deliverance. He had deliverances that will, call, will curl your hair. In fact, after he got baptized in the Holy Ghost, they used to put signs out there In when he would preach to the fields, in the fields, don't climb the trees. When the Holy Spirit falls, you could fall out of the, the tree and get hurt. So they had warning signs, be careful, the Holy Spirit's about to move. Right? Well, what happened to John Wesley? We know that Wesley... Let me read this article. This is really interesting. The Moravians, the Germans, had a major impact on John Wesley. They actually were the root of why he got baptized in the Holy Ghost. He was a missionary pastor, graduated, goes to Georgia on a mission trip, and while he's on the ship, (laughs) let me read this to you. The worldwide influence of the 18th century Moravian missionaries were extraordinary. One notable example was the impact on John Wesley, leading directly to his conversion experience... I want you, he was already a believer, but a conversion experience. He experienced God. That's why in, in um, Acts chapter 19, when Paul comes into Ephesus, he says, "What baptism did you experience?" Okay, I'll just leave it there. We'll go there later, uh, maybe next week. And it says, "Well, what happened was in Wesley's journal, covering many years in 1736 to 1738, is replete with comments about the Moravians. He called them the Germans." A few of the highlights from that, Sunday, January 25th, 1736, Wesley is aboard, a, sh- a bound for America. He's aboard a ship, and they are, these are not the, you know what kind of ship this is, right? These are wooden ships with the sails, right? Okay. So, th- that's a treacherous journey. If um, you ever, I've been on a real sh- metal ship in the middle of a storm in the Atl- North Atlantic, and I'll tell you, there were no atheists on that ship when we were done. <laughs> At seven, at 7 o'clock we went to the Germans and they had observed this great seriousness of behavior. Their humility and was continued proof of the way they served others and the passengers. They did things none of the English would do. Probably clean toilets, mop, I don't know. Which they desired and received no pay. They said it was good for our proud hearts that our loving Savior would have done that for them. So every day they gave an the occasion to show meekness. If they were pushed or struck or knocked down, they rose up, went away with no complaint from their mouth. So he was watching their lifestyle. Remember? Activism. One of the formations later that he puts as the formation of the four points. Your lifestyle needs to be reflective of Jesus. It says, they had no pride, no fear, no anger, no revenge. In the midst of one of our services, They were singing the psalms. The service began and all of a sudden, the sea broke over, split the main sail in pieces, covered the ship, and water poured in between the decks with great and deep already looking like it was to swallow us up. The terrible scream came from the English. The Germans comely sang on about their Savior. Wesley watched them without fear in the midst of look like certain death. And said, what do they have that I don't have? Perfect love expels fear. Right? And so that later was the reason. And it says that he was in a a Moravian gathering two years later. And the Moravians were there. And it says that he felt strangely warm. It was at that moment he got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And that then, if you read his story, the thousands and thousands of miles he rode on horseback, bringing the gospel, bringing deliverance, preaching the Word, coming up against much criticism. So, when we look at the history of this, we want to know what are the founding principles of this? And so now, take a look at your outline. We've got a couple minutes, and we'll, we'll pick up the biblical foundations next week. Pentecostalism, and the Charismatic Movement. Pentecostalism and the Charismatic Movement is a Protestant Christian movement that emphasizes direct personal experience of God through the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Pentecostalism is a term derived from Pentecost, an event that commemorates the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the believers of Jesus Christ and the speaking in tongues as described in the second chapter of Acts. Like other forms of evangelist, evangelical Protestantism, Pentecostalism and the charismatic Christians adhere to the inerrancy of the Bible and the necessity of an individual accepting Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior. It is distinguished by the belief in the baptism of the Holy Spirit that enables a Christian to live a Spirit-filled and empowered life. The empowerment includes the use of the spiritual gifts such as divine healing, prophecy, and discernment. The Pentecostal Charismatic Movement is very decentralized, comprising of over 700 denominations, many independent churches, and an estimated 500 million adherents. Key attributes of this movement are a biblical worldview, personal relationship with the triune God, world evangelism, missions, and the gifts of God as the signs and wonders validate that the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The charismatic movement is one of the fastest growing global movements with an emphasis on the spiritual gifts, charismatic, charismata, and miracles. Religious news service, you can look it up, February 2020 said, should he tarry, one-third of all Christians by 2050 will be charismatic, uh, why the denominational churches are collapsing. So, what we're going to do next week, I've kind of laid the foundation. I'd like you to think about some of the words we've talked about, this cessationism, replacement theology, pluralism continuationism, the new apostolic reformation just think about some of those things, can research them a little bit now next week we're going to preach, it happens to be this is a God set up, it happens to be Pentecost Sunday hello Uh, is Agape tribe doing worship? okay well you know Lots of Holy Spirit (laughs) on you. Uh, And so, um, we're going to look at the biblical basis of what I've laid out for you. Um, We're going to look at, because scripturally, you want to be able to share your faith. Why do you believe what you believe? Now, if they don't accept the Scriptures, I love this. When uh, Sean Smith, who was just at our Voice of the Prophets, when he was on Oprah a couple recently, she asked him, so what do you believe about the homosexual movement? And instead of giving opinion, do what Billy Graham did. The Bible says. The Bible says. The Bible says. So knowing, and you might take in the front of your Bible. That's why I like you guys that are more automated than I am. But um, I got all sorts. It's on the left side of the page around midway. Um, uh, Lord, I don't ever want this to grow old. You know, because it takes me a long time to convert it to another Bible. But you should have, like here in the back, you should have your, maybe writings of your prophetic words. Maybe you have them on your phone, you are, who are more literate than I am. Um, You can have scriptures in here that says, someone asks you about why you believe what you believe. You should be able to pull those out because, one, there may be a time coming where they're going to take these away, or it will be illegal for you to proselytize. You got to have it here and here right? There's a place where know the Word. Get it down. Get the foundation for your own self. Here's what will happen also. Turn off the television. Turn off the social media. I think the average is five something hours on social media now. What in the world? There's probably not a whole lot of good stuff going on there. Get yourself in a place. I love what Bishop Study the Word. Study the Word. Pastor Bishop, study the Word. Do some studies. Take those topics I just talked about. Dive into it. Get convinced, because what's going to happen is, once the truth, remember Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is full of living power. It's able to cut between the soul and the spirit realm. When you get into that place and you start, have that revelation of truth, that truth that will set you free. Who knows the truth? My true disciples know my truth. And right that truth sets you, you're going to fall more and more in love. And the more in love you fall with understanding what you believe, you can't be moved from that. And then what will happen is God's going to bring all the living stones together, and as the miracles multiply, people line up and say, we're going to go there. So, let's stand. You've been great. Let's pray for Daniel and the team. I know they've been working hard to try to reboot the computer. Lord, we still had sound and we had AC. Praise the Lord. So, that's all we need, right? But we probably couldn't project outside to anybody live stream. Oh, okay, praise the Lord, hallelujah. Okay, hallelujah, live streamers. So let's pray. Lord, we just come before you and I thank you. Lord, I thank you for people's hearts that are hungry. We started in that Jeremiah 29, that if you'll wholeheartedly search for me, you'll find me and I will break the strongholds of your captivity. So whatever was hindering, one of the themes of today, whatever's been hindering, whatever's been holding back, whether it's fear those things that we need to stop doing, the places we need to yield to the Holy Spirit on, and the places we need to go the one way up the mountain. God, I pray for dreams and visions. I've already had somebody start telling me about a dream that validates some of what we were talking about this morning, the lights and the colors. And so God, I know there's a theme here that you've got you've got a plan and a purpose. So Lord, I pray right now, Father, as we come together as a group of believers, preparing our hearts for Pentecost, the outpouring, the outpouring. Let it be here. Let people come hungry. Let them study these Scriptures that are in this, when they come next week and we look at all the Scriptures in the book of Acts where the Holy Spirit fell on them, came on them. It's different and distinct than than just being born again, which is powerful. So, Lord, I pray right now that we'll come together next week with such an amazing expectation, anticipation of the outpouring. There'll be people baptized in the Holy Ghost. Their lives will be changed. So, Lord, we come and we present ourselves, and we thank you for the privilege, the privilege of being called. You've drawn us to this place. You've brought many from north, south, east, and west, California, New Jersey. They're coming and saying, I don't know why I'm here, but I'm here. Well, God, I thank you that there's living stones being brought in. So we thank you. I ask your blessing now upon each one in Jesus' name.